We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. The names behind the numbers. The stories behind the names. This is the Her Hoop Stats Podcast with John Little. I would have never thought that anything like this would have happened. This wasn't a job where I grew up just like, oh, I, I, I want to be a writer. Like, this was my dream. That was, that was never the, the... I didn't even know that that was the thing that you could do for money until I started doing it for money. The biggest newsmakers, the best storytellers. The Her Hoop Stats Podcast. Here's your host, John Little. Welcome in. John Little here with you on the Her Hoop Stats podcast for another week. Really appreciate you subscribing. Uh, all the positive feedback that we've gotten so far on Apple Podcasts and, and really on social media as well. It means a lot to us, so please keep it flowing in. Love to see what you rate the program and also review it as well. I'm John Little. I'm a broadcaster out of the Dallas area. By day, I'm a news radio guy along with my partner, Susie Solis. You hear her on the podcast, on the front and the back, and I've got to say that. Otherwise, uh, she starts charging me royalties and everything. So Susie Solis is our announcer, uh, but then also really passionate about basketball, about women's basketball, about sports in general. I'm a play-by-play nut, and so that's just a little bit about me. And we've got a great show for you today. We've got a couple writers uh, in, and we haven't really talked to writers before on this podcast, so this is going to be a lot of fun uh, to kind of dive into with a couple writers at different parts of their career. In just a little bit, we're going to talk to former University of North Texas athlete and now a professional basketball player, Ashel Tack, and she's written a really cool book about the college athletics scene and what you need to know or what your son or daughter or your loved one needs to know before they go into collegiate athletics. We're going to talk about her book. We're going to talk about her journey coming up just a little bit later. But first of all, from the ringer, Shay Serrano is joining us. He's a best-selling author, author of two best-selling books, in fact. And also, we see a lot of his work on the ringer as well, plus his very loyal 
Twitter following. And just in the last couple of years, he's become a women's basketball fan, and he's now a super fan of the Las Vegas Aces. So that's one of the things we get into, as well as his career and his followers' philanthropy, too. It's a great conversation with Shea Serrano. Yeah, what's going on, man? We wanted to get you on the show because you are a big supporter of women's basketball. And we were curious to see uh, how that started. That's kind of where we wanted to start out today. How did you start getting involved with the women's game? Uh, That actually started... Probably like um, I know the this was this is the second WNBA season I followed and the second like college tournament that I followed. So it was like late 2017. The way it ended up happening is there's, there's a uh, writer I really like. Her name is Natalie Weiner. She's at SB Nation right now. At the time, she was at Bleacher Report, and I wrote this book that came out in 2017 called Basketball and Other Things. I guess Natalie got a copy, like a digital copy of it or something like that. And she had, like, Google searched or, like, control left and looked for a few WNBA player names. And there were none of them in there. And uh, and then so she's, like, sent a couple of tweets about it. And I saw it. And in my head, I was like, well, I mean, it says in the beginning of the book, this is, a, this is an NBA book. It's about the NBA. Like, you know, what's going on here? But the more I thought about it, the more I started to realize that I was like, I think, is this a blind spot for me? I think this is a blind spot for me. I really like basketball a lot. Why am I not watching the women's game? So I sent her a, a, a message the next day, and I was like, hey, I saw the tweet. I appreciate it. And, like, you know, thank you. And then I just, you know, reached out to a few of my buddies uh, who are, like, uh, you know, who are familiar with the game, and, like, Kristen Ledlow, for example. And I'm like, hey, who should I be following if I want to, like, try to – I want to learn about the WNBA. I want to learn about the college game. And she gave me a few names, and then I reached out to a few other people, and they gave me some more names. And then I just – that's sort of how – that's how it all – began so i knew going into that wnba season i was going to be following that and during that time you know my radar is already up a little bit uh, because of that and i saw a clip that had come across on twitter and it was a, a highlight of a backup point guard at the university of oregon her name is Ina Ayuso, and she had a play where she crossed her defender over and the defender fell down and that's one you know that's one of my favorite things in basketball so I retweeted it with like I retweeted it with like a little joke, and I was like, "Oh, this is like cool or whatever." And then when the tournament started, she did it again. I think it was the first game of the tournament, and she made another defender fall down. And I I saw that clip on Twitter, and I remembered that this was the same player from before. And I said, "Oh well, I'm, the tournament's starting, and it's always more fun if you have a team to root for." And apparently. Like the possibility of a defender falling down is like always the case with Ina Ayuso. So I'm just going to follow Oregon. And then when I started following Oregon, I realized like, oh, she's a she's a freshman. She's a backup. They have they have a better point guard named Maita. They have Sabrina, who was like turned out she was one of the best players in the country, if not the best player in the country. Um, and that's really just how it all sort of started from there. Uh, that is awesome. So you got hooked in with uh, Oregon, of course, and you've actually been out to a game kind of as their guest, right? Yeah, that was really neat. Um, so it turned out I didn't even put this together beforehand, but I had already done a, I'd given a, a digital talk through Skype with, with, I think it was a journalism class at the University of Oregon. I do them all the time. So I just sort of like, you know, it was just in the back of my brain. And then I got an email from the professor. Her name is Morrison, Deb Morrison. She's like, oh, I saw you tweeting about this or that. Like, that's cool. And I said, oh, this is the same, like, this is the same school. That's really neat. And then we just sort of worked out the chance for me to go up there and, and, and watch their season open. They played Syracuse, I believe. 
and uh, and meet you know the coach and a few of the players. It was really cool. That is awesome. Well, you know, with you getting into the women's game a little bit later on in life, how do you try to sell it to other people? You know, that aren't giving the women's game its due. I don't need, I don't think I'm. I'm allowed to be in a position where I like try to sell it to other people because I'm new to all of this. There are writers, there are broadcasters, there are you know, people in those positions who have been doing it longer and doing it better. So I just sort of leave that to them. I feel like my job is I don't want to be like the person in charge of the parade. I just want to be in the in the back with everybody sort of screaming and yelling and, and cheering. So that's, I mean, it's the same thing I do with like, you know, the NBA. I'm just rooting for teams and like tweeting about games, and then enough people are following me that they, you know, they start to like, oh, let me see what's going on here. Hopefully, you know what I'm saying. I I totally get what you're saying, and you have a different position than many of us, though, with your Twitter following, with your best-selling books, and all that sort of thing. So I'm not trying to put any pressure on you, so to speak. I'm just saying, <laughs> what, what is it like to be Shea Serrano? What is it like to have? you know, almost 300,000 Twitter followers and, and things like that, where you put out an innocuous tweet and it could blow up. I put out an innocuous tweet and, you know, it doesn't get any traction whatsoever. As that's grown for you, as your fan base has grown, how has that changed your outlook on how you use your platform? I think more than anything, I just try to be, I try to be, uh, I don't know, as positive as possible. I just want to spend most of my energy doing, doing that. I want to celebrate stuff. That's sort of like my whole thing. Even with the, with the books, like if I'm writing a book about something or like I did a thing about the office, cause it's my, you know, maybe my favorite TV show of all time, certainly one of my favorite TV shows of all time or any other writing I do at the ringer. I, I've never, I've never certainly over these past few years been the type of like, Oh, I want to write about this thing. Cause I thought it was bad. You know what I'm saying? I want to, I want to go the other way. I want to write about stuff that I like. So it, none of it, none of it has really changed. It's just like the more people I get following me, it seems like the more people I have to like celebrate stuff with. Like with the tournament, for example, with the with the World Cup that just happened. Mm-hmm. Like it was cool to you know. I, I think I watched like the each of the the USA games, but like by the by the third game, I had a bunch of like soccer followers following me who were able to like explain stuff to me that I didn't understand, which I thought was neat. That's just that's just the way it works. It's, I mean, it's fun. More than anything, it's fun. And it sounds like that's the key for you. Some people love doing negative stuff, and that's kind of their M.O., so to speak. Why does it work for you, you think, to, to be positive and be yourself? I, I, how, how key is that in your success? I imagine it's a, it's a big part of it, certainly. I don't, I don't have... I don't have a thick enough skin to like spend a bunch of time talking bad about things because eventually people start saying bad things about you. And and that's, that does happen every once in a while. And every time it happens, it's still like, it still hurts my feelings. I've been doing this. I've been freelancing or freelanced for, you know, seven, eight years. And then uh, I've been full-time writing for the last couple of years. Um, it still hurts my feelings, no matter no matter what's going on. I could get fifty nice things in a row from like people that I really like and respect, and and I don't know, and are like powerful people in whatever industry it is I'm trying to make my way, and then I could get a a, a thing from a person I've never heard of with some weird like weird Twitter name with seven numbers in it, and he could just tell me that I'm I'm, I'm a horrible piece of that 
whatever it is I'm doing, and it just breaks my heart every time. So I try to, you know, I try to avoid that as often as I can. I'm just not, just not a strong enough person <laughs> to, to deal with that. Well, neither am I. So that makes two of us, man. So we're visiting with Shay Serrano here. And uh, Shay, how did you pick uh, the Aces as your team? Well, I was just looking through the the list of like WNBA teams, and I was trying to find one that made the most sense. And I didn't want to pick like a, I didn't want to pick whoever it is that was supposed to win the championship that year, you know, so that eliminates one or two teams. And I didn't want to pick a team that was like on the decline because that's no fun. Let me pick a team that has not been very good, and, but that has like a chance to be good. And so that's where it started. And then I found the aces and I was like, and then I realized they're from San Antonio, which is where I'm from. Actually, they live here now. Um, so we had a San Antonio connection. And also they had just drafted Asia Wilson. So they had like this potential superstar that I could attach myself to mm-hmm. that I could, that could play in the league for, you know, 15 years or whatever. Maybe I could watch her win a championship. Um, so there was that. And that, I think those were like the two main pieces. I needed a young team. They had also drafted uh, Kelsey Plum. They had Kayla McBride. They had, they had like a, a, a core. Their main players were all young players. So that was good. And they were from San Antonio, and then they had the, the big superstar. And that was really how it started. And then just, the, you know, the more games you watch, the more players you learn, the more sort of backstories you start to fill in. And that's really when it becomes like an interesting thing, when you know the, the small parts or the smaller parts, and you get to sort of you're – not, you're no longer watching like, oh, I'm going to watch Aces versus the Wings. I'm going to, I'm going to watch this game now because I want to see Asia versus, versus Liz. You know what I'm saying? And, and then you start to, like, the more you read about it, the more you realize, oh, these players, these two players don't like each other. Like, I want to tune into this game. Yeah, that's or a lot Diana of fun. Diana Taurasi. Yeah, Diana Taurasi is sort of setting everything on fire right now. And let me, let me tune into this Phoenix game because I want to see that. You know what I'm saying? Like, just the more you watch it, the, the, the more interesting it becomes. How big is that, in your opinion, to grow the individual personalities and let these players be themselves in order to grow the game, specifically in basketball? You don't have a helmet on. One player can make such a big difference. We just saw it in uh, NBA free agency. Um, we obviously saw it with, uh, you know, the, the aces falling into Liz Cambage over the uh, summer as well. Uh, you know, just letting these players be themselves and in some way growing those personalities and accentuating those personalities and allowing them to be themselves. How key do you think that is in growing uh, the WNBA? I think that's more important than basically anything else, especially in basketball. Basketball, those two things are so connected. You, there, are, there are only, you know, there are a handful of players on the team. You get to see their, their faces like you're, like you're mentioning. You get to, it's easy when you're watching a game to see every player out there and to see what's going on. It's not, it's not like when you're watching football and there are 22 guys out there and you can't see anything. You don't, know, you don't know what sort of interplay is happening. During a WNBA game, you can watch it happen. During any basketball game, you can watch it happen. And, and it just makes things so much more, more fun. They had the game the other day where, where Liz got into it And then after the game, she sent a tweet about it, and it was like, this is fantastic. I love that. I'm I'm excited for this next game between these two teams because now these two players are, like, probably going to butt heads a little bit more. Like, those sorts of little things are fun. The Aces have this pregame thing that they do where their their guard that they just brought in, Colton, 
she like leads them in this chant and it's been getting longer and longer every time. And the longer it gets to me, the funnier it gets. They just keep adding songs to it. It's becoming this whole like this whole thing that you sort of look forward to before every Aces game. Now I'm looking for the tweet. That's the, that's like the video clip of them doing the thing. Cause I want to see what they add to it. Like that, those sorts of little things are fun. It's what, it's just what makes everything better. Look at, look at the, the NBA off season right now. Like this has been an incredibly fun off season, not because basketball is being played, but because all these players are moving positions and sort of barking back and forth with each other. When you have that sort of interplay going on, it just makes things way more interesting. No doubt. It's, it's a lot of fun. And uh, we're visiting with Shea Serrano here. So I wanted to talk to you about how sports and pop culture are connected. I was reading your article about uh, you uh, bragging about your aces and how they're going to win the uh, championship this year. Comparing Liz Cambage to a scene in Inglorious Bastards, how do you think that sports and pop culture go together? And why is it so easy for you to kind of glide just one into another, even in the course of an article like you did there? It's easy for me because that's just what I spend all of my time doing. I spend all of my time watching basketball games and watching movies and watching TV shows. So those comparisons just to me seem like obvious things to make. And also I know when somebody is reading a, reading an article, like they probably know about this other thing too. And it's fun to connect those dots. Just, it's just like a fun thought exercise, I guess. Did you ever envision this for yourself? Um, going back to your stories, well-known a teacher in the Houston area, and, you know, you start to become a freelance writer to try to make ends meet, you know, kind of that uh, that side gig or whatever. Could you ever imagine this for yourself as far as just the way it's come together and how you just being you has meant such great success? No, no, I, I would have never thought that anything like this would have happened. This wasn't like this wasn't a job where I grew up. It's like, oh, I, I, I want to be a writer. Like, this was my dream. That was, that was never the, the – I didn't even know that that was the thing that you could do for money until I started doing it for money. Uh, I thought I was going to be a teacher for my whole life. I thought my wife was going to be a teacher, and when I was going to be a teacher, and we were going to teach at the same schools for 30 years and then retire, and, like, that was going to be what we were supposed to do, I thought. And all the writing stuff just sort of – it seems like I always back my way into everything. Like, I, the first book that I did was this – this very silly coloring book about rappers. And the only reason I did it was because there was a rapper, this guy named Bun B, who was part of this very influential group in the South called UGK. And I had interviewed him a couple of times because I was writing for the paper, one of the, the, the alt paper in the Houston area. So he reached out and he was like, hey, do you want to do a book with me? Like, let's do something silly. And that's how we did a coloring book. And the next book that, that I did, which was the Rap Year book, that wasn't even my idea. That was the, the editor from the coloring book this woman named Samantha, uh, she said, hey, I, I have an idea for a rap book. I think you should write it. It could be fun. And so that's why I did that one. Like, all this stuff just sort of, you know, this wasn't, none of it was planned, but everything has sort of, everything has changed. My life is 100% different right now than it was four years ago even. It's just, it's wild. Obviously, you were the right guy at the right time uh, to do those sort of things. And it just simply by saying yes uh, to some of these things, uh, you became a, a household name. It kind of shows that there could be something in all of us if we're just willing to take that leap. Is that something that um, 
that you have always believed in, or is that uh, something that once you lived it, now you believe? I would guess this is something that I've always sort of just, I guess, believe. But yeah, I mean, I try to say yes to as much stuff as I can, even if I don't know how to do it. Like when I mentioned the coloring book, I didn't know how to make a coloring book until I agreed to do the coloring book. And I was like, well, I need to learn how to do this. And so I just sat down and learned how to do this. I didn't know how to write a book until I wrote a book. I didn't know how to write a TV show or a movie until I sat down and wrote a TV show or a movie. Like you just, yeah, you just say yes to this stuff because only one of two things is going to happen. You're either going to figure it out or you're going to realize you can't do it. And then there you go. Keep it moving. I was just, you know, what's interesting is I was just having this conversation, a version of this conversation yesterday with uh, my dad. It was his birthday. Uh, so he came over. We were having like, you know, a little cookout type situation. And we were talking, we were listening to Stevie Ray Vaughan. Do you ever listen to Stevie Ray Vaughan? Absolutely. Yeah. Great okay. text. This, like this is a guy that my dad listened to when I was growing up. One of, you know, one of the musicians who was sort of always playing in our house. And we were listening to him. And then, like, uh, there was, like, a playlist that was going. And Celine Dion was on there as well. And, like, a few other, like, really talented people. And we were talking about how there's, like, a group. There's there's very clearly a group of people in the world who are so insanely talented that there's just, there's it's no matter how much you practice, no matter how hard you work, you're never going to be as good at this thing as this person is. You could You can play... I think you can practice the guitar enough and you can play a guitar like Eric Clapton. I think you can do that, but I don't think you can practice a guitar and play it the same way that Stevie Ray Vaughan plays it. There's just something different there. Same mm-hmm. with Celine Dion singing a song. There are some singers you listen to them and you go like, Oh, if this person practiced enough, you could be as good as this person here, but you could never practice enough to be as good as Celine Dion. Like you can't, you, there's a, there's a class of people who are just untouchable in that situation. But for everybody else, like if you work hard enough, if you try hard enough, if you screw up enough times and get up enough times, I think you can be, you can be a version of successful in the same space. And I think that that's probably like in the nicest form. That's where I fall. I just, I got, I got extremely lucky in a lot of situations and I just kept trying and trying and trying until eventually I like, was able to figure out how to be a version of successful in this space. There are some people I would never be able to write as well as Wesley Morris, for example, was at the time, Doreen St. Felix, Gia Tolentino. I'd never be able to write like these people can write, but like I can, I can, I can be like two levels behind them and still make a living, and it's cool. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely, and I appreciate you bringing that up because I, I wanted to ask you about your writing style. You know, growing up, we, we get to English four class and they're trying to teach us how to write and they're trying to break down everything that we've done. And they're telling us it's not right and it, it's not verbose enough and you're not using fancy enough words. And you've had success, you know, just writing like you speak or writing like you think. Um, why do you think that is connected with people, even though maybe your writing style isn't uh, maybe traditionally, like you, you brought up a couple names there, something that would be considered uh, a, a masterpiece or something like that in, in certain writing circles? Probably because, so there, I think there are a couple of different ways that you can be a successful writer. Number one, you can just be really good at writing, like the people that I just mentioned. And then number two, uh, another way is you can be a person who, like, who writes the things that other people don't write. 
can do the things that other people don't do. And that's sort of where I've tried to like, I, I realized I wasn't good enough to be in the other class. So let me do this other version where you just have to spend a bunch of time trying to think of stuff that hasn't been done yet. And then writing that way, because if you do that, if I'm like the only place where you can read a certain thing, then I'm the only place where you can read that thing. You have to come to me to read it. You can't go anywhere else. And once you do that, what you start to like tilt things in your, in your favor. Like if we, if we did a podcast, if you and I both did a podcast and it was both about women's hoops or whatever, people would probably listen to yours before they listen to mine, just because you're already in that space and you're sort of, you've, you've grown You've grown like a, a listenership. So I can't show up and do the same thing that you're doing. Same as I can't show up and write like a game recap, like, like Zach Lowe can write a game recap. Or, or, or like a long profile, like Mirren can write a long profile. I can't do what they're doing because they're better at it and they've been doing it longer or whatever. I have to do something different. And that's just sort of what I've, what I've been trying to do. And I think if you do that long enough, enough times and you get that reputation as like the person who has the other ideas and there you go that's awesome well this gives us a perfect chance to promote the new book movies and other things how is this one structured what are you excited about uh, sharing with uh, the masses when this book comes out in october this one is structured the same way as the basketball one before we're making this like a three-part series every chapter is a different question that needs to be answered a different question about movies or a movie that needs to be answered. And there you go. It's 30 chapters long. And it talks about, it talks mainly about movies that came like after the eighties or like in the eighties and after, because that's when I started watching, watching movies. I'm excited. I'm really excited about this one because it's the first time that they let me do a hardcover. I've never gotten a hardcover before. Uh, So I'm excited about that. I think it's going to be very pretty. And then also it's just like, I'm a little bit better than I was when I wrote the basketball book, so I think the book is better. And there you go, man. That's what I, that's what I'm excited. I'm incredibly nervous. That we're three months away today is like the three month out date, and this is about probably sometime in, in late August, early September is when I'll start feeling like really nervous about everything because you have the whole book release coming and like you spend all this time working on it I've, I've been working on it for 18 19 months and now we get to find out is this book going to be a success because it's like i can think it's a success because i wrote it and, and i like like the way it came out but if people don't buy it then, then they won't let me make any more books and that's terrifying no i hear you and uh i appreciate you pulling the curtain back on that but one thing's for sure it's going to look great on coffee tables right so even if people don't so. pick it up and read it i mean it's it's going to look beautiful on a coffee table you can brag about it because it's a hardcover book that's awesome what was the most important question that needs to be answered or what uh what section of the book of the uh the 30 different questions did you have the most fun writing about I don't know. I need to look. I need to look through it. Nothing jumps out at me just yet. I've spent so much time inside of it that, like, right around this point is when you start to get sort of sick of it. I don't want to read it anymore. I don't want to look at the pictures anymore. Right. So I kind of hate it. All. I, I kind of hate all of it right now. So you can ask me the same question in like, in in twelve months, and I'll probably have a better answer for you. I thought we were going to be on this podcast. I thought we were going to talk the whole time about my beloved Aces. They're number one in the Western Conference, and you haven't even mentioned it one time yet. They just walloped yesterday another team. We haven't talked about it. What's going on here? That is, this is why I came. You keep asking me about my stuff. I don't want to talk about my stuff. I want to talk about the Aces, baby. 
That's awesome. Okay, let's talk about the Aces. As a fan, are you ever critical of the team? Or is it in this uh, honeymoon phase, you know, where they can kind of do no wrong at this point? I feel like we're at the point now, we're, we're, we're closing in on it, where I knew the beginning part of the season was going to be a little tricky because we got Liz in. Liz is such a gigantic force on the basketball court that we sort of need to move some pieces around before everybody feels comfortable playing playing with her. It looks to me like we're starting to get to that point. They beat the Liberty yesterday by like 32 or something crazy like that. They were probably going to lose the game before that against the Mystics when the hurt when the, not the hurricane the earthquake happened. But they won before that against the Sky. They won before that against the Fever. They won before that. Or they lost the game before that to the uh, to the Sparks. But um, it feels like we're getting to the point now where we're, we can start to be a little like upset when things don't go right. We're past the point when we sh- when we when we like make the bad mistakes, make the mistakes like that cost you a game that shouldn't have been made. Like there's nothing wrong with missing a shot. But there's something wrong with like taking a bad shot. That's where we are now with the with the Aces, which is like really exciting. Last year you were sort of crossing your fingers, hoping you made it to the playoffs. This year they're like a legitimate championship contender. I don't say too many bad things about them. Certainly not online because they've been they've won more games than they've lost. But when they do lose, I'm always like, oh, what what, what is Lynn Beer thinking here? Why is Erica not out there? Erica's my favorite player in the league right now, by the way. She's the best. It's like, you, you know, you start to, to put those pieces together. Like, let's figure out what the best lineup is. Let me see what's our closing lineup. What are we going to do against? What are we going to do against the Sparks, who are terrifying when they throw that big lineup out there? What are we going to do when Seattle next year is back at it? Like, I don't know. It's sort of open this year. We can we can sneak away with a, with a title, which is crazy. All right, you say sneak away, but is it going to be a disappointment even in the first year of Liz Cambage if they don't win a title? I will be disappointed. Yes, absolutely. I don't think I don't think like overall it can be considered a disappointment. You can't go from not making the playoffs to not winning a title and being mad that you didn't win the title. Like you should you should have a, at least one season in there where it's okay if you don't win the title. But in my head, I'm like in my head, I'm I'm saying who's stopping us when the playoffs come. We, we can sort of put any lineup we need to out there. We can go big. We can throw Liz, Asia, Dierica out there all at the same time. We can go small and just run you off the court with Jackie, Kayla, Kelsey, uh, Cole. I really like Colson. She's been great. What kind of game do you want to play? We can play whatever game you want to play. And more than that, we should be able to force you to play whatever game we want to play. I would be sad if they don't lose, if they don't win the championship this year, but I don't think it would be. A, I, I, you can't call it a, disappointment the scariest part to me is liz doesn't even have to be dominant especially you know the number of shots she takes in order to make that team a better team we saw what she did in dallas last year with a 53 in one game 43 in another game obviously she's probably the league's most intimidating force and if she's all you got you've probably got a good shot still uh, to make the playoffs like you did last year but she doesn't even have to do that this year no, she does. She she is she's a monster down there. It's so much better when she's on your team than when she's not on your team. She's the reason, matter of fact, that the Aces didn't make the playoffs last year. They were playing each other. I think it was the second to last game of the season, if I'm not mistaken. They had identical records. Basically, whoever won this game was going to the playoffs. And Asia played brilliantly. She had a wonderful, wonderful game. But Liz just went nuts, and there was nothing we could do against her. She was just too strong, too big, too powerful. 
And now we have her on in an Aces jersey, and we get to watch her do that. We get to watch her bully the other players. I like it much more. Let me tell you, I, I like it so much more when she's on our side. But like you said, Dierica Hamby, most underrated player in the league. What do you think? Absolutely. Absolutely. She just comes, she comes in the game. She gives you, you know, whatever she's playing, 18 minutes of just screwing things up for the other team, just causing all kind of trouble, all kind of mayhem. She's going to outwork anybody you put in front of her. She's never going to make a mistake because she's afraid. She'll probably make a mistake because she's going so fast, but never because she's afraid. And that's really all you can ask for in, in any sort of player. Same with Kayla. Kayla's never going to miss a shot because she's scared of the shot. She's going to miss a shot because sometimes you miss a shot. That's all you need in a, in a team. But yes, Dierica, I just wrote a thing about her the, the other day, like how she's secretly like in the top five of every stats category over 40, over a 40 minute game of all of the players in the league. She's up there with, you know, with Liz and with Asia and, and any great player in the league that you can think of. Her name is right there with them. And she's only playing half. Like it's, it's been fantastic to watch. She's my, favorite player. And I don't know where this came from because she didn't play this way last year. She was fine last year. She was a fine player. She was somebody you trusted in the game. She was somebody you wanted out there for like the last four minutes of the fourth quarter, definitely. But this year, I don't know if it's because because Liz is in there and she's like, I don't know if she feels empowered by that or if she feels maybe a little threatened and like I need to prove myself here. But she's been falling out this season. She's my favorite player to watch. No question about it. Well, I look forward to the Aces coming to town to to play the wings, uh, I think it's like on August the third or something like that. Liz coming back to town, so that, that'll be a lot of fun. Like you said, the uh, the underlying um, uh, storylines in the league and and the personalities and and things like that. I mean, that's that's the kind of game that you circle and say, I've got to be at that game, and that's what this league needs. Is uh, they need some bad blood every once in a while. Yeah, it's really great. It's really great. Who was it last year during the playoffs that Diana Taurasi was getting into it with? Like, that's why that Seattle-Phoenix series was so much fun. You know, Phoenix is, of course, the older team in that situation. But you've got basically it was Diana versus Sue running around on the perimeter. And then Brittany and Brianna sort of going at it download, doing all the, these brilliant things that they're doing. But watching, like, they have these great clips where Sue is just, giving it to her, giving it to Diana, like not even, she didn't even have to say anything. She's just sort of giving her these looks. There's this great, like a phantom camera, slow motion shot after Seattle makes this, this great play. And Sue is just staring her down. And it was, it was like, this is, this is incredible. Or, or when they got into it during game five, when right, right when Sue went bonkers and sort of took over that game. Um, but there's that big, you know, Sue was mad that one of the other players had tried to knock her face mask off. And then Diana came in and I was like, backing her way into players on purpose, sort of dropping sticks of dynamite into this fire. It was, like that sort of stuff just makes the games like as much of that as I, as I can get. I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to see all of it. That's awesome. All right. Before I let you get out of here, I'm, I'm not going to let you get out of here without uh, bragging on your FOH army and you know what, what they've done and what you guys have done to, you know, raise money for different charities and, and different, awesome causes. I've heard you tell the story a few times, but I want you to let our listeners know uh, about the generosity of your followers and how it kind of all got started. There's no way to like explain what this thing is without sounding like you, like I don't, I don't know, without sounding ridiculous. But basically, um, when the draft yearbook was coming out, 
and I was trying to get everybody to buy it. I was tweeting a bunch about it. And we like we sold out on Amazon and we got an alert. Okay, they're sold out here. Then we sold out at Barnes and Noble. Then we sold out at um, Books a Million. All these various bookstores we kept selling out. I was making jokes about about like we were just going place to place, sort of causing all this trouble. And then somebody else responded that it was an army, the FOH army. It's like shorthand for get the fuck out of here because we were just doing stuff we weren't supposed to be doing. And that's that's how the name started. The donation stuff started because we, the uh, illustrator of the book, Arturo Torres, him and I were doing this newsletter in between books because we were bored and people were trying to send us money for it because we were doing it for free. After a few weeks, we were like, all right, we're going to accept donations. If you want to pay for this newsletter, you can pay for it here. And I added a little button, a donation button to the newsletter and people donated you know, several thousand dollars. Arturo and I talked about it beforehand. We're going to give this money away. They sent the money in. We gave it to this, this uh, woman's shelter in Dallas that Arturo actually, him and his brothers and his mom grew up in, or they spent some time in there. It was like a, not a great situation at home with his dad. So they left, and that's where they went. And that, you know, that's where he started drawing. We did that. People were like, oh, my God, that's so cool. Great job. And a few weeks later, we did another donation button. And uh, when we did this one, people were like, well, where are y'all sending the money this time? It was like an expected thing. So we, we just donated that again. And we just kept on doing that. And every time it just got a, a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger. Now we can, you know, we can raise $20,000 in, in two or three hours. It's not a problem. We've, we've done it for the last couple of years. We've, all, we've donated just like pure cash. Probably somewhere in the neighborhood of two hundred fifty to three hundred thousand dollars to different nonprofits or different GoFundMe's for like medical wow. um, issues or funeral services or you know just whenever something comes along that that touches us, we throw it out there and people spend all their money and there you go. That's what the thing is. It's cool. You know your followers. Not only do they you know, love you, obviously, but uh, they want to be a part of something bigger as well. And, and they want to do the right thing and they want to uh, it, to help. And, and certainly, I, I know this is not why you're doing it, but it uh, it, it has to help, um, uh, you know, your uh, your followers just, like you said, feel like uh, feel like they're part of a of a bigger uh, purpose than just, you know, messing around on Twitter every once in a while. It, it, it certainly has to help grow your brand just a little bit. I, again, I know it's not why you're doing it, but it certainly it, it helps as well. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's like a cool thing to be associated with. It's, I get probably every day I get 10 or 15 different emails or messages from people sending me saying, like, can you help me raise money for this, raise money for that? Um, it's cool to like have that reputation on the internet. You can have a lot of different reputations on the internet. It's cool to be associated certainly with, with something like that. And, and the thing about like, the thing about it helping you feel like you're part of something bigger is like, that's a very real thing because again, if we've donated $250,000 over these, you know, however many, two, two or three years, I think out of all of that money, I have myself personally out of my own bank account, it's maybe been a few hundred bucks, maybe a thousand dollars, at most, each time it's like ten or twenty bucks, five bucks, a dollar, whatever. People will send in, and they'll be like, "Oh, this is all I have right now. I can only send in four dollars." And and I'm like, "Well, that's cool because we have four thousand other people who also sent in four dollars. Yeah. So your four dollars just became sixteen thousand dollars in forty five minutes. Right? You definitely feel a certain thing in your chest, especially on something like a GoFundMe when somebody's like, "Oh my God, my my brother in law just passed away." 
and we, we don't know how to pay for his funeral, and they need $7,000. And you can watch the little green bar fill up, and then you can see this person react to ha not having to worry about this thing anymore. Like it's, it's, it's cool, man. It's like a, it's all good vibes, you know. We're just trying to trying to help out where we can. Absolutely. That is uh, that is just awesome. Shay, we, we so appreciate you coming on. Thank you for spending some time on your Monday with us. It means a lot to us. I know it means a lot to our listeners as well. And uh, thank you for giving women's basketball its due as well and just being a fan because uh, it's, it's great to have you guys on that wall uh, to help grow the game. So thank you, Shay. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Because you're doing the same thing. But also shout out like Michelle from ESPN and Rebecca and Natalie and Aaron and Jamila, everybody like LaChina. There are people who have been doing it better and longer. Shout out to those people first. I don't need, I, you know, I don't need, to, I don't need to be celebrated. Certainly. It took, it took me 30 years to get here or whatever, how long it's been. I but it's been, it's, it's been a long time talking. That is Shea Serrano here on the Her Hoop Stats Podcast. Really appreciate his time and his availability. You know, sometimes when people start getting really big, like Shea is right now, they're tough to reach out to. But he is super accessible. And uh, it, it's great for us, not only for us, but also young riders out there. He's absolutely trying to help others get a hand up in this very competitive world. And so uh, a shout out to Shay for being himself and continuing to be very generous with his valuable time. And that leads us to this really cool story of Shell Tack. She's a younger writer now. She's just out of college by a few years, and she is originally was born in the Sudan, moved to Egypt, and then moved to the Dallas area when she was nine, didn't know the language, and eventually developed into a basketball player that started getting Division One offers. It was tough for her because she didn't really know what was being thrown at her. Eventually, she chose the University of North Texas and had a solid career there before going on to play professionally. And she's written a book now called The Reality Behind the Glamour of College Athletics. It's going to help anybody that's considering a career in college and also coaches, caretakers, parents, of course, of those kids. So here's our visit with a shell tact. Yeah, thanks for having me, John. Absolutely. And we, we have you on because you we, you wrote a book and we're going to get to that in just a second. But tell us uh, where you've played over the last couple of years overseas and, uh, you know, kind of what you're thinking about doing uh, for this next year. Tell us about your pro career. Um, well, after graduating from the University of North Texas, um, I went overseas to Switzerland, Switzerland my first year. Um, and had a great season up until playoffs. I got an injury actually mm. towards the end in playoffs, um, second round. And so um, then I came back to the States, rehabbed, got two surgeries, um, took a year and a half off to come back from that injury because it was a pretty bad injury. Um, and then after that year and a half, I was able to go back for a second season, well, half of a second season, to Czech Republic. And that's um, where I just came back from um, in April. Um, so I've only actually played a season and a half um, and this next season in October when I go back overseas it will be my second full second season should I say well I, I know that's got to be challenging for you to go through an injury like that and especially when you're overseas you're away from family those sort of things how did you deal with that as you were going through that injury at least when it initially happened and and that was kind of sinking in to you um, well, I've, I've dealt with injuries before, so it wasn't new to me, but this one was pretty 
Um, it was pretty worse than the injuries I've had in the past, but um, I had great teammates overseas and a good coach that looked out for me and made sure I had everything that I needed. And the medical team overseas in Switzerland was just amazing. Um, the surgery went well, and the doctor did his thing, and he told me what I needed to do to come back in terms of rehabbing and um, doing the work physically and mentally to come back. And I think they handled everything to the best of their abilities, and I liked how they handled everything. And I think the the hard the hard part or the tough part was coming back to the states and not you know when you're in college you're around your teammates twenty four seven. When you're overseas, once you leave, you're back to yourself right until you go right. back to another right. season. Mm-hmm. So the tough part was just me coming back and dealing with everything myself mentally and physically. Um, just because I'm the type of person that likes to keep, you know, to oneself. So I, I like to keep myself. So I didn't really, a lot of people didn't really know I was injured or anything. I kind of kept it to myself and did my own thing. Um, but other than that, everything went went well. Was there any, ever any question for you that you wanted to, to come back and play professionally again? Or did you, did you have those doubts at all? I did have doubts, honestly. I was In my head, I was like, oh, I don't want to go through another injury. Mm. Um, and it's like working your way back after an injury, right? You're not, you might not come back the same player. Um, so I was like, okay, am I going to be the same player again? Is this going to keep me from reaching my potential, um, being the best player that I could, I could be? Um, and where will I end up? You know, what team's going to pick me up now since I'm injured? And um, after thinking through those things, I think the love for the sport kind of brought me back. And is like, hey, well, you love this sport. You like to play it. You know, you don't have any obligations as as far as like kids or anything that you have to tend for. So do what you love, um, and just keep doing it till you can't do it anymore. And that's what I did. Now, during the time you took off because of the injury, <laughs> is that when you kind of started thinking about this book and writing this book? Because you've written this book, the reality behind the glamour of college athletics, which I think is a tremendous subject that you know a lot of high school or even junior high kids or parents, you know, of those kids need to know about. Is that when things started kind of turning in your mind or where was that uh, impetus? Um, Absolutely, John. I think that time period that I had off gave me a lot of time and space to think about other things besides basketball. It forced me to be by myself and think of, okay, if basketball was to seriously end for you, what would you do? And I think that played a part in and how athletes don't really take their education seriously in college. Because when I was in college, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a school type of person, you know, so I took school seriously. I did everything that I could to try and be successful, you know, um, after I graduated. And my mindset was, obviously, I want to go pro, but I also knew the reality of it of if I don't go pro, what am I going to do with my life? You know, what type of career am I going to want to pursue? And, um, and so thinking about that and having sisters that are playing the sport and were in high school at the time, um, them having the proper guidance after I went through it, I think kind of helped them in terms of trying to figure it all out, right? And having someone there to talk to and get valuable opinions from something I didn't really have when I was going through my own process. Um, so just the time of being to myself and dealing with my injury kind of made me think of this world and kind of reflect back after I've been through it and think, wow, like there's some things that I regretted, some things I wish I could have done better. Um, and then just putting myself in better situations for the later outcomes. Um, So I think that's when the topic kind of came into mind. And then I got connected to um, 
this guy named Samuel Abraham that actually became my mentor, and we started talking. And um, he's not he's not into sports. He didn't sp- he didn't play sports in college or mm-hmm. anything like that. But he's a big um, soccer fan, and he knows about college athletics or little. He knows a little bit about college athletics, and he was kind of talking about athletes and how they basically look like they're not all they care about is athletics and not their education and that's where the conversation started happening and I was like well I think someone needs to come out and just kind of tell these athletes the truth and kind of guide them because I feel like there's not a lot of guidance out there and if there is guidance out there it's not being done properly shall I say um and athletes are kind of, I mean, these kids are signing the schools at 17 years old, 18 years old, and they don't really know a lot. And if they don't have the proper support around them, they're not going to make the best decisions um, that will benefit them in the long run, right? Um, so that's what I was thinking about. And I think my sisters going through that transition kind of helped the topic even more. And then having my background in it and being, you know, having gone through it and then knowing athletes that have been through it, I think that kind of just brought everything together. So, yeah, that's just great. And let's go back to your process and what it was like for you in high school. When did you start knowing that you were pretty dang good at basketball and this might be something that you could do in college? To be honest, when I tell this story, everybody kind of laughs because I literally didn't start playing basketball until my freshman year in high school. Yeah. Um, kids usually start playing when they're like two years old or younger than that and yeah. grow up within the sport. Um, and I was really uncoordinated. I was skinny. Just I didn't know how to like move with the ball. I didn't any. I didn't. I didn't even know like much about basketball, right? But I picked it up because it's something that I saw that looked interesting and I wanted to try it. And so I tried out for the freshman team. And I don't know, I guess my coach saw something in me my freshman year. Um, And so she put me on the team. And literally, like, in games, they would start me just to tip the ball because I was tall. Yeah. (laughs) And then sit me on the bench because I I didn't know how to play. Um, But I'm I'm a quick learner, so I picked it up just by watching visually and then by demonstration, right? So I think my coach worked with me a lot, my high school coach. And through time, throughout time, I think I picked it up. And my sophomore year um, on JV, because I went through the process, right? I didn't go to, you know, as a freshman playing varsity right. or sophomore playing varsity. I went through the process. Yeah. So my freshman year, I played on the freshman team. My J, uh, my sophomore year, I played on the JV team. And then I got moved up tor- towards the end of the year. Um, but I think my process was was pretty pretty quick for someone that just picked up the sport. Yeah. And I wasn't even thinking professionally. I wasn't thinking college. I was just thinking, hey, I like this. I love doing this. I want to keep doing this. I didn't even know you can actually get scholarships in it. Um, so it was just a new world to me, honestly. But um, over time, I learned the process or what little bit that I did learn. Um, and my high school coach kind of helped me to the best of her abilities. And that's how um, I got the opportunity to earn a scholarship to play at the college level. Fantastic. And what's going through your head is you're trying to make a decision on where to go. Um, I think it's overwhelming for a kid that started off not knowing how to play and not being recruited as much to all these schools now contacting you. Um, And coaches are contacting you all the time um, trying to get you to um, like them, like their school. I was kind of shy at the time, so I I I didn't know what questions to ask coaches about their schools or their programs. I just talk to them about regular things. And, you know, as coaches on the phone, they're trying to get to know you, right? They've seen the basketball aspect of things, you know, while, you know, playing it in tournaments and stuff. So what they're trying to do is get to know you as a person, what do you like to do, all those things. But I didn't know what to say to them back. So it was 
at, on the phone, sometimes you'd be kind of quiet because it's like, I don't know what else, what else to say. Right. But having gone through the process, I was like, wow, there's so many questions I could have asked mm. that could have put me in a better position mm-hmm. that I did not know. And my mom wasn't that involved just because she didn't know this world. She didn't know how to navigate through it. She was there for moral support um, and whatnot, but not so much um, educated within this process. So she couldn't really help as much. And then my high school coach did the best she could or what she knew. She was also I was I was also asking questions from the very coaches that were recruiting me Um but it was the process for me, I feel like, could have gone better just because I didn't know much. But I think at the end of the day, for me, I think everything worked out the way it did for a reason. So do I have regrets? Yes. But at the end of the day, I think everything worked out how it was supposed to work out or unfold. And what do you recommend uh, to people once they do get to college as far as you know, being all in and, you know, really trying your best to make an impact where your feet are at that time. I think it's very important that you use your advisors to your advantage, um, not their advantage. Mm. Um, And by that, I mean um, advisors are there to help you and guide you because most athletes that go to college um, don't really know what they want to major in. They don't know what they want to do with their lives. All they know is, I love playing basketball. I got a scholarship to play basketball or or football or soccer, whatever the sport is. Um, and then I'll figure out school later as I'm going through it. And the first two years, obviously, you're taking your basics, right? So you don't really have to make a decision. But over time, you kind of have to decide what you want to do and what degree you want to get. But um, when I say use your advisors to the best to your advantage is... You tell them what you want to do. Don't let them tell you what you need to do, right? Mm-hmm. So you tell them, I'm interested in this. This is what I want to pursue. Give me some options instead of like, oh, I don't know what to do. Can you please help me? And it's great to get guidance from them, but you have to take charge because it's your it's your career path, you know. Um, and then always just know that the percentages of going pro, if that's what you want to pursue after college, they're low and they're unlikely due to the statistics and how many people play sports and the opportunities are out there. So you have to plan for yourself. Make a plan B, C, D. Um, I think if if your dream of playing pro is what your dream is, that's great, and I think you should pursue it. But you also have to have a backup plan for if that doesn't work out because as athletes, um, we have physical demand. So if you can't physically perform, you're done for. So if anything was to happen, God forbid, injuries or whatever the case is, you have to be prepared to have an opportunity lined up for you when you graduate, you know. Um, so that's what I'm big on, and that's that's something that I kind of didn't really think that much about when I was in college. Um, even though I, I said I took my education seriously, I felt like I could have done more, you know, um, used up more of the school's resources that they provided and did my own research instead of relying on my coaches to kind of tell me what I needed to do at the time. So I think that's what athletes need to do. We're visiting with Michelle Tack. She's written the book, The Reality Behind the Glamour of College Athletics. What part of the book for you was like it just flowed off the page? It was so easy to write. You were so passionate about it that it, you know, just clicked. To be honest, John, I think everything flowed. Good. I think the whole book flowed. And um, so the way the book is structured is it's not just me telling stories, right? It's me um, kind of introducing each topic, right? right? And then talking about it, like giving the facts and then having, because I was able to interview a lot of athletes for this in different sports Good. and kind of speak their own experiences. So you're not just listening to me because if you're just listening to me, you might think, oh, you're the only person that probably went through that. Why should I believe you? 
But if you have other athletes speaking on the same thing from different sports and they feel the same way, you're more inclined to think, okay, maybe I should pay attention to this. Maybe this is more relevant than I thought, you know. Um, And so I have different topics and then I tell the facts, you know, and then recommend things. I'm not telling you what to do. I'm just kind of putting it out there, you know, Um, recommend things and then have these athletes speak their, their voices throughout the whole book. It was pretty easy, not easy to write, but the information flowed, so I didn't really have to force anything. I did do some research, so it's not just all opinion-based. Um, there are some facts in there. Sometimes when somebody writes a book, um, you know, they, they kind of get addicted to it, and they're like, all right, what's the next book? Mm-hmm. Is that happening for you as of yet, or I, is it one of those things where, all right, this is my book for now, and this is wonderful, and now I'm kind of, you know, moving on, like we said, back to, to pro basketball. Or do you see this being, you know, something that, you know, maybe you're known for down the line as a writer? Do you hope that? I do. Um, I think when I first started, I was like, okay, this is the only topic I want to write about. Right. This is the only topic that I was passionate about writing about. And after th- going through the process and just seeing um, the change that it was it was making and, and getting the feedback that I got from different multiple people saying, wow, this is really good. Wow, I can relate to this. Wow, this really helped me. In my head, I'm thinking, okay, wow, I can really continue this and 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 continue to write meaningful stuff that can resonate with people and and help them through whatever it is they're going through so in in the future i think i will be possibly writing another book will it tie into this topic i do not know yet but all i know for now is i do love this process i do love writing and being an author is just a rewarding is a rewarding process honestly and for your word words are powerful so for you to take the responsibility of saying, okay, I'm going to write this down and hopefully to impact somebody out there and trust that it will. I think it's just a beautiful thing. And it's something that I just, I love doing. So you've got such an interesting background as well, having been born in Sudan, you know, moved here to the States from Egypt. I'm sure there's a lot that you could write about that you're passionate (laughs) about being an immigrant and having moved here uh, just a little later on in life when you were nine and when you're nine, I mean, you've got memories and thoughts and, and all those things that you can reflect back on. Mm-hmm. How has that given you a unique perspective that you can share with other people, especially in the current climate that we're in politically right now? Well, um, moving here, it was tough um, just because coming from one culture to experiencing another is tough and having to learn the language. Um, I didn't know a lick of English when I wow. came here. Wow. I didn't know any English. Um, they threw me, I think, in the second or third grade um, just because, you know, I was a certain age, so I couldn't really start in kindergarten. Like, that would look silly. So they threw me in there, um, and I was in ESL, which is um, English. What is it? Um, English second language. Second, yeah, yeah, I yeah. think that's what it is, um, just to help me progress and, you know, catch up with my grade level. Um, and I was in there for... For a short term, because I I started picking up things faster than most kids. Like you would. said, you're a quick learner. <laughs> yeah, moving to a different country, learning the culture, learning the environment. It's exciting, but also tough sometimes. And um, I think being from another country kind of gives me a different perspective in how I look at things because I have two different viewpoints. You know, I have my own cultural background and viewpoint, and then I have you know the American one that I you know kind of um, came into and. And grew up in, um, and so when I look at things, I feel like I have two different 
windows that I'm looking at, even though I'm looking at the same thing, you know. So that gives that I feel like that gives me an advantage of understanding both sides, if that makes sense, even though it's two different cultures. Um, I don't know if that makes sense. (laughs) But yeah, I'll leave with this. uh, Of course, how can we pick up the book? What's the best way to get it? And who would you recommend the book for? Uh, so you can get the book on Amazon. I have the paperback copy, and I also have the ebook copy um, oh, for those people that are more electronically, you know, um, savvy or whatever. Um, but the book, honestly, isn't just for athletes in high school going, you know, into that transition of becoming a college athlete. I think the book can be for anybody that is looking out for an athlete, like the support system of, of an athlete. Sure. Um, it is for um, People, athletes in college that just graduated because I talk about retirement and dropping that athletic identity afterwards and moving on from that um, when you don't get a chance to play at the professional level and finding yourself um, and not only, you know, being being tied to the athletic identity after it's over because some athletes hold it so closely to their heart, especially if you love the sport, it's kind of hard to let go of, you know. Um, But when something ends, a new beginning starts and most athletes don't know how to jump, you know, jump over to that. You know, it's kind of tough. So I understand that. So it's for anybody that just graduated, anybody that's still in school um, and anybody that's transitioning into that um, role and also coaches. It's for coaches um, because there's so many coming from an athlete. Right. um, Most coaches sometimes kind of have a a hard understanding of understanding athletes, just like athletes have a hard time understanding coaches. So it kind of breaks down that barrier and um, helps coaches understand how to coach certain athletes or um, helps them understand why certain athletes act the way they do. Not that actions are excuses or whatever, but it kind of helps them navigate their way through and know, okay, when my athlete is acting like this, this is what I should do to help them. Or um, when they're in college and they're not um, there for two summers, because some some schools go there for two summers, you know, summer school. Mm -hmm. Um, If they only go for one summer, maybe um, inspiring my athletes or encouraging my my athletes to do internships, because those are important, getting experience early on. Um, So things like that. So I think it can be for anybody um, that's involved in the athletic world, whether you're a support system, a parent, a coach, um, the athlete themselves, or if you're just interested in, elite, in reading about athletics, honestly. So, yeah. That is awesome. Well, she is a shell tack. And again, the book is The Reality Behind the Glamour of College Athletics. You can find it on Amazon. Michelle, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much to Michelle for joining us on the Her Hoop Stats podcast. She was great. And thanks to Shay Serrano as well for his time, too. Can't wait to have you back next week. So make sure in the meantime to subscribe or like us wherever you get your podcast. Let other people know about it. Share it on social media if you like the podcast as well. You're not only helping our little podcast grow, you're helping the women's basketball game grow. And that is what we are all about. So please, let's get that done. Rate and review us too if you're on Apple Podcasts. We can't wait to be with you again next week. The announcer on the Her Hoop Stats podcast is Susie Solis. Thanks as well to Jared Deck for the music, jareddeckmusic.com. And the executive producer of the Her Hoop Stats podcast is Aaron Barzilai. And I'm your host, John Little. At Her Hoop Stats, we are unlocking better insight about the women's game. Her Hoop Stats.